Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. When you hear the term, the Gilded Age, which describes a period in U.S. history that began after the Civil War and lasted until the end of the 19th century, you probably think of a period of industrialization, new technologies, and economic growth. You might also think of names such as Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Morgan, all of whom achieved great wealth and influence during that time. But have you ever thought about the different types of food of the Gilded Age and how it was prepared and presented? In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with Becky Diamond, food writer, research historian, and author of the book, The Gilded Age Cookbook, Recipes and Stories from America's Golden Era. Becky will tell us about the food of the Gilded Age, including stories about railroads and dining, picnic baskets, the rise of restaurants, and a food-making demonstration at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Becky will also talk about a few of the recipes in her book, which include one called Aunt Lizzie's Pineapple Pie that was handed down to her through her own family from her great-great-aunt. I'd now like to welcome Becky Diamond to our show. Welcome, Becky. Hi, James. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm very, very interested in this upcoming conversation because I love the Gilded Age. There's so much about the Gilded Age that is of an interest to me because uh, I'm actually a board member on the Grover Cleveland Birthplace Memorial Association. So we've got a Gilded Age president, and there's so much about that era that it's, it's interesting to me. So in a minute, we're going to get started on talking about your recently released book, The Gilded Age Cookbook, Recipes and Stories from America's Golden Era. But first, let's talk about your background. You have a a deep interest in food. You're an author, you're an historian, and a researcher. So tell us, how did you first develop an interest in history? Yeah, I guess, you know, when I started to get more into my 20s and 30s, reading especially. I I really liked reading nonfiction and learning things because you're not in school anymore, you know. So I just, instead of always reading fiction, I just started reading more nonfiction. And I've always been a foodie. So that part of, of history really interested me in terms of, you know, what can we learn from food history? Because it's not something you typically think about, but there is a lot that you can learn from you know, looking back in time and seeing how food has changed, what people, you know, have eaten has changed and all of that. So I just, I had seen in a cooking magazine that um, the first cooking school in the U.S. was started in early 1800s Philadelphia by this woman, Mrs. Goodfellow. And that's the area I grew up in. I I never heard of her. So I was lucky in that I found a publisher that was interested in that topic. I, I thought originally cooking schools in general, kind of the history of cooking schools. But um, then I thought, you know, let's just delve into her, Mrs. Goodfellow. And we did that. And it was just so I learned so much about culinary history and Philadelphia history as well, frankly. And that just really kicked it off. 
And from there, once you research one thing, it's, you know, it leads to another. And that led to my second book, The Thousand Dollar Dinner, which was this 1851 culinary duel, which was so interesting to me because you don't think of something like that back then. But it actually leads into the Gilded Age and a lot of what I wrote about in this current cookbook because they really, especially gentlemen of means from, you know, starting in the mid 19th century, that was one way to show off your wealth and do these little contests who can put on the finest dinner and not just the food, but everything that goes along with it. And uh, it just was, you know, it, it all snowballed. And, and then I had done all this research on that time frame and started recreating recipes as well. I wanted to learn, like deconstruct the recipes because you can learn so much. And I started blogging about it and, and just taking an old recipe and updating it for modern ingredients. So I thought, why don't I put that into a cookbook? The Gilded Age is kind of seeing this little bit of a, you know, I don't want to say Renaissance, but like this interest, especially with the Gilded Age TV show and everything. So that's how it all came about. So just back on that book about the duel, I mean, mm -hmm. there was a, a lot of interest in Alexander Hamilton. And of course, he was in a famous duel with Aaron Burr and he didn't fare so well. Uh, we know that part of history. But this was actually a duel between were they were they like restaurateurs? Who were they? Yeah, you know, it really started with the gentleman. So it was 15 from New York and 15 from Philadelphia. And all men of means. Unfortunately, we don't really know who they all were. We can speculate. We know a couple of people. But it was a way for them to show off. So like the ones in New York said, oh, well, Delmonico's is our finest restaurant. So they had Delmonico's put on their part in New York. And then the Philadelphians said, well, we can do even better in Philadelphia. And there was a restaurant called Parkinson's, which obviously is not as well known as Delmonico's. But James Parkinson put on the same sort of thing. It was uh, 17 courses took place over 12 hours and all paired with wine. So that's what I write about in the book really are the courses, why he chose what he did, what he had to do to get these. It was April. So things were often out, of, you know, obviously out of season. So it was really jumping through hoops just to get some of this food on the table. So that's how it really started. 17 courses with wine. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd love to I see know. the people waddling out of that dinner, huh? Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, that was really just over the top. Every person at the table had a waiter, you know, standing right behind them. I don't think they were eating a huge amount for each course, but at the same time, it was a lot of food and, yeah, all that wine. And, and think about it, they these were all old world wines. They were not like the wines that we have today from California, Oregon, even South Africa and Australia, whatever. I mean, they were all European wines. Just amazing. What did you have to do to get on that list of people invited to those? I know. I think you had to be somebody definitely of means. That's why I speculate like the founder of the New York Times, maybe definitely people like a merchant, you know, some of the merchants who really were making money back then. And because um, it was pre-railroad so it wasn't necessarily I mean railroads were starting but it wasn't like this whole gilded age 
railroad um, industry, which I always say really built the Gilded Age. Yeah. So so you had to dig into the history of the era and then you you have you said you're always a foodie. So you actually wanted to merge your knowledge of this uh, era with the food that was served back then. So first of all, let's talk about what and when was the Gilded Age? Can you give us some background on that, Becky? Sure. Some people say, well, it definitely starts around 1870. And then some people say through 1900. I like to say a little further, like maybe 1910, like 30 to 40 years um, at the end of the 19th century. And as many people know, it was coined by Mark Twain, that term from his book of the same title. And it wasn't necessarily meant as a compliment, you know, because it was gilded on the surface. And then underneath, there was this layer of corruption. Things weren't regulated. There was a lot of unrest between workers. You know, that's when unions really started to, to you know, ma- start making noise because they weren't treated fairly. And there were plenty of people living in tenement housing in New York, especially a lot of immigrants. So, I mean, you know, I write about all of that. You know, the food obviously is, yeah, this fancy (laughs) stuff, but um, it's important to recognize that it wasn't just glamour, you know, so. Yeah. So there was this elite, you know, the names Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, and some of those people, big fortunes were being made. Uh, There were a lot of people working for very low wages, though, weren't there? Exactly. Um, And I write about this, too. It was actually because I thought it was important to mention in terms of cooking schools, because a lot of people, especially young women, came from Ireland during the potato famine and needed to find work. So one thing you could do was be a housekeeper or cook in you know, somebody's home, but they didn't necessarily have the skills that these Gilded Age women needed because They came from these little cottages in Ireland. They didn't have probably a cook stove. You know, they might still have been cooking over an open fire and didn't know how to use the ingredients here because they were different. So these cooking schools came about as a way of really helping these young women know how to cook for Americans, frankly. And then even the ladies of means, because these cooking schools were a form of entertainment too, frankly. So these, you know, ladies of means would go maybe during the day and, and just kind of see what it was all about with this French cooking. And, and also then they knew what they wanted the, um, you know, the housekeepers and cooks to make. So they was like, well, this is what's popular. This is what we need to have on our table. So there's many layers of that, I feel. Yeah, wasn't there also the emergence of, of more of a middle class that came about during the Gilded Age? And why was that so? Absolutely. And I, I mentioned this, I touch on it too. I think it's just because more and more people were able to make a living. And especially in New York, um, it was really expanding. And they were moving uptown, the people of means especially, we kept moving more and more uptown. And the middle class just wanted to emulate upper class in any way that they could. So they would do the same thing, have these teas and 
um, you know, whatever balls they could, I don't necessarily balls, but maybe dinner parties and whatever shop where the other ladies shop and buy what they could. But it just was this whole, you're right, emergence of this middle class for sure. You mentioned, of course, that you're interested in food and you want to include recipes with history, which you've done beautifully in your book. So let's talk about the Gilded Age cookbook. What was it that you could say was your experience during that process? You had to do a lot of stuff because you had to merge history with photographs, with incredible recipes that sort of mouthwatering. I'm just going to read a few off my little list here. Aunt Lizzie's pineapple pie, which I want to ask you about in a second, chocolate macaroons, tea cakes, pumpkin cake, and various other foods that were, were just mouthwatering. Um, and actually, my wife Kelly and I made one of the recipes, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But tell us about what you had to go through to put this book together. I would imagine it was more complex than your first two books. Yeah, absolutely. And my first two books, I didn't even have recipes. And um, I mean, the first one, I have things that Mrs. Goodfellow taught in her shop, but I didn't update them for modern ingredients and measurements and things. But yeah, I had a lot of recipes from blogging about them and really testing them over and over to see what works and what doesn't work. Like one thing I always mention is eggs were much smaller then. So they used maybe a dozen eggs in a cake, but we don't need that many today. So you have to really go through and, and try different things. So that was that was something, you know, with all the testing. And then just going through old cookbooks, what are the most popular recipes, going through menus. Um, New York Public Library has a fabulous menu site that I could go through and see what was popular, what was on the menu at the time. So that was one thing that I did. And then just going through old newspapers, because they sometimes have, they have dishes too that were listed. And, and then I could find out some of the tidbits about, you know, these stories and, and everything. And then the other part of it is I had a fabulous team. I had a photographer who was just wonderful, Heather Robb. And then um, Dan Macy is my is the food stylist, and he and I are actually part of this historic foodways group. So I knew I've known him for a long time. He's just a fabulous food stylist. So having them as a team, I always say it was actually I was kind of like the project manager because I'd have to coordinate our schedules, and then you know when we submitted like with the photographs and and making sure we had the locations that we needed to have and and all of that. So there was quite a bit that went into it, you know, and then of course, finding other recipes and the Aunt Lizzie's pineapple pie, that's my mother gave me a bunch of recipes that were in my family handed down. So they are Gilded Age era. They've been around, you know, since the late 1800s. And um, I was able to include some of those. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to be authentic, but at the same time, make the recipes accessible. So like nothing so over the top, you know, we can't like turtle was actually a huge dish in the Gilded Age turtle soup or any other, you know, ways that they would make turtle. I'm not including that, obviously. Number one, the sea turtle's endangered and I, people aren't going to want to make that, you know. So I was trying to be 
I had like, I have one recipe for rabbit that a chef donated to me, like let me use. But other than that, for the most part, these are really accessible and most people can make these recipes. I I hope anyway. Yeah. I think turtle would not be one of the things that would make my mouth water unless I was about to get sick. Right. I know. (laughs) It's actually not bad. If you've ever had snapper soup, um, and it's funny because years ago they called green sea turtle Barbados beef because it's supposed to be very tender. It's just supposed to be delicious. But I, you know, we won't know because they overconsume the the green sea turtle and now it's endangered. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to ask a couple things about the recipes. First of all, so Aunt Lizzie was your grandfather's aunt that I read? Yes. My mother's family is all from, they were Dutch from New York years ago. Yeah. I love that. I have to interject this. So my father's oldest half sister, she was born in the, at the end of the Gilded Age, born in 1901, I believe. And there's a recipe of hers and a recipe of her husband's that came down to our family. And I have them thanks to a cousin of mine, but my aunt used to make something called rainy day sticks and they were like fig and nuts and powdered sugar. Mm-hmm. I think she called them rainy day sticks is because she would, she would make them for her sons on a rainy day. It was something to do and, and it was delicious. And my uncle Ed had a, a spectacular non-alcoholic punch and I forget what was in it. I wish I, I could find it, but it's a, ginger ale it had like um, i think lemon juice and some other stuff and it was just delicious but it's nice to have something actually that came down through your family that you're able to put into this on top of all the research that you did and by the way it's taken a lot of research and a lot of patience on your part to find all these recipes yeah i have to give a shout out to google books because google has scanned anything that's out of copyright can be scanned into Google Books now, and it's searchable. So it's such a godsend to me to be able to just go through Google Books and do a search, you know, say on, you know, pineapple pie, if I wanted to compare it to another one, and and then, then limit the year to the same years, and you come up with, you find things from cookbooks, and it's really great. Um, People know that I love to cook, so people donate all kinds of cookbooks to me, which is fat. Like I have the White House cookbook, Mrs. Rohr, she's one of the cooking school instructors. I have her everyday menu book, so that was really helpful. So you just go through things, and but to me, I, I love that. That's perfect. I know in our house, when you open up the cookbook, all these index cards fall out maybe a napkin or two or a piece of construction paper or line paper falls out and it's you're at somebody's house something is delicious and kelly would say how do you make that you know they would jot it down and we'd throw it in the book and we'd find it you know years later and say oh yeah that was great i think a lot of people probably have that don't you yeah absolutely and it what what could be fun if you ever had the time is to like almost compile them online and they have programs where you can make your own cookbook now and that way they're not lost you know just in a book but we need the time to do that i know yeah that's that's hard i wanted to 
talk about one of the one of the recipes that sounded delicious were chocolate macaroons. But along with that recipe was a discussion, a little historical piece about the difference between hot chocolate versus hot cocoa in the Gilded Age. Are you able to sort of give a summary as to what the difference was between the two? Sure. So, and you almost have to preface it with chocolate as a baking ingredient was not really popular or even known of until later, like around the Gilded Age, because the way you process chocolate was, it was difficult to process. And then this Dutchman Van Houten figured out how to remove like the cocoa butter, the fat from the actual chocolate, like before they would just grate it. Like there was like these really like blocks of chocolate, but they looked not like today. They weren't like processed or refined or anything. So chocolate was mainly a, a drinking beverage, honestly, for most of the 19th century or a big part of it. In fact, if you saw a recipe for chocolate cake, it actually was meant to be served with hot chocolate. It wasn't a chocolate cake itself. And so the cocoa was when they would actually make it into a powdered form, like we think of today, like hot cocoa. And that was more reserved for children, for people who were sick. Like Fanny Farmer said, oh, it's a nutriment, she called it. But they knew it was a stimulant. Like they knew that there was like, I don't know if they knew exactly what caffeine was, but they knew it could make you stimulated. <laughs> um and then the hot chocolate, I don't know if you or any of the listeners have ever been to Belgium or places in Europe, they still put it on your table, like in the morning for breakfast, like we had it in Bruges, Belgium, where it's just this picture of drinking chocolate. Like, I don't know if you think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, when Augustus Gloob gets stuck in the, you know, the river of chocolate, like that's what it tastes like. It's not syrup, but it's just drinking chocolate. I can't think of any other way to describe it. That was very popular at tea parties, actually, like at afternoon teas, they would have a chocolate service in addition to tea and coffee. And especially the young people liked it, I think. But so it was very, very popular. They had chocolate pitchers and like a chocolate set. I have one that my mom, again, was handed down and we used it in the in the book some of the photographs. So it was just a very popular thing. I don't know why it fell out of favor because who wouldn't want drinking chocolate? You know? <laughs> but, and that's why I guess the Europeans really, you know, they still like it. But, um, and then once they figured out how to process it, then yeah, you, I mean, now chocolate is just to me eclipsed any other flavor that you can get for sweets, which there's nothing wrong with that. But that I always say, go, go back through some of the recipes where like lemon and rose water and ginger, like these other flavors that are really good in desserts, but we just tend not to think of them as much because of chocolate. You know, what's really sad. I love chocolate, but for some reason in the last probably 10, 15 years, I get a headache from chocolate. Oh, wow. Very strange. But, you know, sometimes I just have to go ahead and have mm -hmm. it anyway. Wasn't there something chocolate jello that I saw as one of the recipes? Yes. So, it so and this was a hugely popular way to make foods in, in gelatin form. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. One being that they didn't have refrigeration. So when you made a gelatin and encased something in the jello, it would help preserve it, honestly. But yeah, this was, again, you would melt chocolate 
and combine it with just plain gelatin and sugar. And they loved those gelatin molds. And it looked, you know, fancy. Like they would have all these different molded foods on the table. So you could see in all different shapes and forms and everything. A lot to the presentation of foods, right? Exactly. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that. But first, tea cakes. So that was the recipe that my wife Kelly chose to make. And uh, it presented well. As a matter of fact, she did a little uh, preview post for this episode, and she put the cakes out on my mother's china. My mom had passed away a long time ago, but put them out on my mother's china, and it made for a nice presentation. The cakes, though, when I when I tried it, I tasted. It, I thought I'm expecting like this blast of sugar. Even the more mild cookies or, or less sweet cookies are still sweet. And these weren't. And at first I thought, I, I actually asked Kelly, did you miss something in the ingredients? And she said, no, no, I, I made it exactly from the, the Gilded Age recipe. And from what I understand, it, was, it wasn't supposed to be overwhelmingly sweet, was it? Exactly. And there are other baked, like the Jumbles cookies that I make are very similar. And there's another, Shrewsbury Cakes is another. And yeah, they're, they're very... Um, just almost like a biscuit, frankly. And, you know, they're meant to be had. And probably because there were other things sweet served with them. Like say, maybe you're having a cup of this hot chocolate, you know, and then you don't want something overly sweet or just to have with tea or, or whatever. So, I mean, feel free and anyone can, can add more sugar. Absolutely. If you wanted to do that or even more of a flavoring. I know that these are, there's really not there's a, no flavor. There's not even vanilla in them, but you could add vanilla or rose water or something like that. But yeah, they were meant to be very basic, almost like if anyone knows in England, they have those digestive biscuits that yes. they serve with tea. And it's very similar to that. Yeah. Once my palate was expecting it, I enjoyed it. And as a matter of fact, our girls stopped by and they're all gone now. So they've all been eaten, but uh, we're going to try some of these other things. So we talked about presentation. I noticed in these photographs, beautifully done, all different types of china and cups and and things like that. What was that process like in putting this book together? Yeah, so again, we had um, myself and the food and Dan, the food stylist and Heather, we actually had a shared Google like drive where we were uploading photographs. Like I said, my mom lent me a lot of china that was in her family and then dan being a food stylist had a number of things too that we could use and then heather was able to get a family that she knows and we i mentioned her in the book the curies and they donated or lent us their china that we could use as well just because we didn't want to use the same patterns over and over you know and we had different things to choose from. But um, yeah, I, it was, I'm very lucky in that we were able to have like these good props to go along with it. Oh, I mean, it really makes it. If, if we had put like, if you put your these beautiful little tea cakes or Aunt Lizzie's pineapple pie, you put it on a uh, paper plate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just it not just... going to look right. <laughs> Right. It would not be good. Absolutely. And then the other part of that, I always have to give a shout out. There were two locations that let us take photographs. 
you know, to have in the background. And one of them is called the Madison Hotel in Morristown, New Jersey, in North Jersey. And they have two fully restored Pullman dining cars that you can eat in. It's amazing. And they gave us full, you know, we could we could just film what we wanted to there. Plus their restaurant, Rod Steakhouse, really looks like the like Delmonico's. It's it's amazing. They have like a chandelier that was in the Mellon Bank in Pittsburgh. Like they're really, it's a great location. I can't recommend it enough. And you know, we, we went back to eat there in the dining cars when the book was launched. So that was fun. And then um, the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion in Philadelphia is a restored Victorian mansion. And I know the director there and we were able to take photographs in their dining room and, and, and their kitchen too. So that was really great. Yeah, there's so much about this book that you can get absorbed in it because it's not only the recipes, but you're seeing the settings that would have been in place and getting the history behind all these types of meals and uh, what people were serving and what it meant to those people in society at their level of uh, where they found themselves economically. Maybe for the first time, maybe these were new money people. People made money during the Gilded Age. Exactly. The, the, the Vanderbilts, you know, they were classic. They, you know, really that they were built on the Gilded Age, the whole Vanderbilt fortune. Yeah. Do you know, it's actually a little piece of information is that I'm a distant, distant cousin of the Vanderbilts. No way. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, I found that when I started doing some family research. And uh, yeah, it, it goes back again. You mentioned the Dutch. Uh, part of my family goes way back to the first Dutch settlers. But you were talking about the Pullman car. So I want to sort of segue into some of the history that's in the book. And the Pullman dining car. Tell us about that and why that came out of the Gilded Age. And what would that have looked like? to somebody taking a ride in a Pullman dining car. Yeah. So really when the, when the railroads first came about and they weren't all built in a day, obviously, and even built, you know, like where they were connecting right away. And that's why all these railroad barons were building out track right next to each other. It wasn't regulated. So they were really trying to figure out how to do the railroads. They were not only freight, but as well as passenger, you know, like, just like today. So Pullman came up first with a, it was like a sleeper, like a hotel car. Cause he knew that people that were traveling. Cause at first, if you wanted something to eat, you would wait till it stopped at the next destination. You have to quickly run out, grab something and bring it. And if you didn't bring it on with you on the train. So Pullman realized, you know, we could really make some money and, and, allow people to dine in style here. And so after the hotel car, he came up with the dining car and he wanted it to be just like dining in a fine restaurant. And he called the first one a Delmonico even, um, very plush. Everything was specifically set up so that you would have the best experience, you know, for people sitting across from each other, you know, in like a little, either a booth or a table. And you know, your waiter would cater to all your needs. And the menu was so extensive, which to me is the most amazing thing because he didn't have much room to store the food on the dining car. So they really came up with some interesting ways to present the food and to make it in these tiny kitchens. And 
the refrigeration part was underneath where, you know, where they would store things. And then also when they would stop at a place, they would pick up more food, kind of like how a cruise ship <laughs> sometimes does, you know, but yeah, it was fabulous. People could really dine in style and they loved it. So when uh, a lot of the businessmen, business people would be in the cities perhaps, and maybe they were traveling between cities or actually living outside the city. So they'd be more likely to be spending more time, maybe going over lunch periods and things like that so that they would utilize the dining car. Is that the way it worked? Yeah, exactly. And, and families of means who were traveling, they could, you know, dine in style that way. But yeah, I think there was a lot of travel back and forth between say New York and Pittsburgh maybe up to Boston, you know, that's the like how we have the Northeast corridor today. And then even out West, I mean, in California and um, even the Midwest, like they had these big excursion, you know, if you, if you wanted to travel out to San Francisco, you would need several meals. I mean, because once the railroads were built, you weren't traveling by like a horse and buggy anymore. Yeah. But then when the automobile came about that kind of, put the Pullman dining car out of business in a lot of ways, eventually. Yeah. So also with the railroads, I believe mm -hmm. you mentioned that you could bring food to different areas quickly. So you didn't have to worry about them perishing. So how did that impact really the history of food from the standpoint of getting things to say to restaurants or to homes or shops or whatever without going bad. Exactly. That was a huge game changer. And I first wrote about that in the thousand dollar dinner because that just fascinated me that in 1851, there was it, the railroads weren't totally built out, but there was enough that that could help James Parkinson get the food he needed for um, his meal. And then by the Gilded Age, it just it was allowing people to have food that was out of season um, frankly, it was a peach grower that really came up with a way to refine the refrigerated rail car because he wanted to ship his peaches far distances. There were fruits like strawberries now that could be, you know, shipped further. Citrus fruits, that was a huge thing. And then, of course, dairy products and meats. So it really helped expand what was available in supermarkets and you know, on the tables of people, like we were talking about the middle class, you know, and then people say in St. Louis now could have seafood in the past. They weren't, because also then canning was coming about the canning industry. Um, so that was another thing that was really important to food and, you know, how things evolved over time. So yeah, those two things together were huge. Yeah. Canning is huge when you think of it how that must have revolutionized so many things. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, you, you know, having fresh produce, fresh vegetables, fresh meat is, is fantastic. But uh, I can imagine what the impact was to the middle class and uh, maybe the lower classes as well. They may not have had the ability to get the real fresh stuff, but the stuff they could stock up on and keep it fresh in the cans, right? Yep, exactly. I mean, that really came out of the Civil War. It's funny how... A lot of food innovation comes out of times like that, like wartime and, you know, 
the space industry when they started doing, you know, how can we preserve things on, on those flights? So with innovation like that comes, it trickles down to everyone. I remember, I know my wife always talks about that. Uh, or I don't know if she loved it, but she used to have Tang. I know that was always talked about in the space launches and things like that. They were drinking Tang. Let's talk about the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. There was a woman who was giving presentations about food. I don't know if you mentioned her before on this podcast, but can you tell us about that? Sure. So her name is Sarah Tyson Rohr, and she was actually from Bucks County, PA, originally where I am now. And she started doing cooking. She actually also attended the Women's Medical College in Philadelphia. She wanted to see what the connection between food and health, frankly, like eating well. And she started working, there was this Philadelphia cooking school, and she became, you know, really involved with that and wrote a bunch of cookbooks and started taking her demonstrations on the road, as you, you know, you can say. And I always, I always say this, that you know, this was before the internet, TV, whatever. So these in-person demonstrations that she was giving, it was entertainment for people. They, they would line up and the auditorium was packed. So she did that around the country and then was invited to come to the World's Fair in 1893. And they had a whole lectern area for like a stage where she would do different demonstrations. And she would often partner with food companies. Like they, this was marketing. You know, they saw it as a way that they could market their products, especially things like baking chocolate, baking soda, which was also like a newer innovation. So she was able to show how to use these foods and, you know, people just were enthralled by it. And, you know, she just, she kept going through like the early 1920s. Yeah. I know the the Chicago world's fair introduced a lot of products and I think Mm -hmm. Pabst blue ribbon was one cracker. Jack was introduced. The Ferris wheel may have been, I I think that may have been new to that. Yes. World's fair. And uh, what's kind of cool, you know what we have in my, we talk about family heirlooms, whether it be a recipe or something else, but I have uh, in my possession an admission ticket to the 1893 World's Fair. My grandfather, when he was, I think, oh gosh, I think he was 16 years old, he went with his parents and um, I have some souvenirs from that World's Fair, but it's always interested me and because of the, the new innovations and believe it or not, I... I can remember, I was quite young, but I went to the 1964 World's Fair, and I remember driving around in the cars and some of the things that they say were going to be the future, and it was so interesting. But so that was a perfect place for, you know, somebody announcing new types of food or recipes or things like that. It was marketing. It was a big marketing thing, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, you know, it- so many people are getting exposed to this new fangled either ingredient or technique or whatever. And that's what helped spread the news. Because again, I mean, we had newspapers, obviously magazines, but there wasn't, now everything is so instantaneous. We get text on our phone, you know, news updates constantly. They didn't have that then. So this was a way to spread it around, you know, somebody like, Oh, I went to the world's fair and I saw this. And then, you know, word of mouth kind of marketing which is what we used to have to do. Exactly. Now, 
let's get to another part of the Gilded Age. I know I've watched different masterpiece theater productions. And you'll see a couple going out into a beautiful countryside, and they have with them a picnic basket that mm -hmm. has been beautifully packed. And, you know, it's, you know, it's very romantic and it just brings you back to another era. You talk about that, actually, the picnic basket and how, how you would pack it and what you would put in it. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, they loved doing things out of doors too. And think about in the summer, especially there was no air conditioning in the city, especially it was very stifling, hot, smoky from the cold that was burning, you know, so to be able to escape to the countryside was just a fabulous outing for people and picnics were one way to do that. And yeah, they would have, you know, now when we bring things to a picnic, we have like an igloo cooler or something. They didn't have that. So they would, you know, these women in these etiquette books and just household books would say, this is how you pack your picnic basket. So you can bring everything that you need, including like your tea or coffee even ice cream, they would wrap in um, like a heavy carpet. And, you know, so that wouldn't melt, had to bring lemonade, they would actually make like a, almost a lemon syrup, and then you would add water when you got to your destination. The type of sandwiches like packaged up, you know, in little papers and ribbon. And so it was, you know, practical, but also attractive as well, the way that they would pack things. Yeah, they didn't have any like cheese sticks or right <laughs> throwing a juice in the box <laughs> baggies to put things in you know or tupperware containers yeah I, I, you mentioned before about restaurants we talked about them but so this era was kind of the gilded age was kind of the time when restaurants came into their own so just a little history about how that how that happened or why that happened yeah, you know, places to eat have been around, obviously, for centuries or whatever. Um, but they were mostly just like a tavern where you would stop by, you know, you were traveling, and you needed a, a place to stay overnight and a bite to eat. But then when cities started to form, especially in the US, they actually took a page out of France's playbook, <laughs> in that uh, restaurants really started in France for the most part as a place for somebody to get, you know, restaurant comes from the word means restore, like restorative and like especially soups. And and it just evolved into a way to get more of a special meal. Like it wasn't just you're eating in a tavern, you're eating what they have available that day. It was you have a choice and you could actually pair it with some wine and have multiple courses and, and all of that. So that's what Delmonico's really took off and they also had enough space where they could have a ballroom and people could have their parties there. So that was another big part of why these restaurants became popular. They could do multiple, even multiple parties in one day, dinners for different groups. So um, that was important. And the other thing I like to mention is, you know, at this time, women, like we couldn't just go out for a meal by ourselves. We had to be accompanied by a man. So Delmonico's luckily started off the trend where women could dine, go out for lunch and, you know, dine by themselves or with each other or whatever. So luckily that started happening more and more as well. Um, that's kind of cool. I know you also talked about holidays and 
You talked about the Grover Cleveland family and what they ate made my mouth water again. So <laughs> there's a lot of that in the book. But I want to step back now and ask you a question. Becky, if you could go back to the Gilded Age and have a meal with someone from that era, who would that be? And where would you be? And what would you want to have as a meal? Gosh, yeah, I know. I've thought about this other times before, too, and I've been asked this. I think one thing I'd like to say is I would love to dine with Sarah Tyson Rohrer, who I just mentioned before. She was from the same area where I've been in around my whole life, you know, this Delaware Valley area. And she had a big connection to Philadelphia and just her experiences, especially as a woman at that time frame, she was very um, forward thinking in the way that she was doing things, very independent. And I would love to hear about her experiences at the 1893 World's Fair, what it was like to kind of travel around like at that time, you know, she, she would travel to all these different cities and what she learned about food over time, you know, did her thoughts change? Did they stay very similar in, in her mind in terms of, you know, cause she saw a lot of innovation too. And um, I definitely would have loved to have gone to that 1893 world's fair and to see everything and see her in her glory you know, with all these audiences enthralled by her. And then maybe afterwards, she and I could go grab an ice cream cone together or, so, or you know, some kind of ice cream or just, you know, just chat that way. What what was the kind of the food along the strip there of the World's Fair? I love that. I've been to Chicago once briefly on business, but I would love to stand in the area where that World's Fair took place. Mm-hmm. Just- you just think, I mean, that's right smack in the Gilded Age and really, really interesting to put yourself back there in your mind. Becky, how did writing this book, the Gilded Age cookbook, impact you? And what is the biggest takeaway you would like your readers to get? I think it impacted me the most just um, making sure that I stayed, like I said, authentic to the time frame and told stories of not just the people of means, but like what was happening throughout the country at the time. And that's really the takeaway I want people to know is it's educating as well as entertaining writing about this era, writing about any era of food history, really. Um, I always say how much history we can learn through food and, and just, to go back in time and, and put yourself in the place of some of these people and just think about how you would have reacted, how your life would have been and compared to today. And frankly, you know, the Gilded Age people of me, it's not that much different than the one percenters that we think of today, you know. And so there's always going to be people in that upper, upper echelon of of wealth but there's also many layers beneath that that it's important to recognize as well yeah definitely and i like the way that you say like you want people to kind of get an understanding of what it was like and it does help you understand the era better doesn't it the food absolutely like what was available what wasn't you know we we were just talking about canned goods like that are so ubiquitous today like 
shop rates having their can can special, you know, <laughs> but like it wasn't, you know, just crackers, packaged goods, cereals, processed foods in general are just, I mean, you can't really avoid them today. But back then, that's when things were really kicking off the, the whole industry. And they did embrace, it was even artificial flavoring starting to come about in colors, you know, so it, it did kind of start, but they didn't realize maybe the dangers of that necessarily, because it was all about what's what's new and um, making going to make our life easier. So um, yeah, there's that whole angle of it as well. You know, I've, I love history, obviously. <laughs> it's in the name of our podcast, but I think I've studied history for years and read it recreationally. And I don't think I ever really got involved in understanding the history of food as it related to the people I was reading about. And as I found you and your book, I realized that I was missing an important, sorry for the play on words, ingredient mm -hmm. to understanding history in the times of the past. Because somehow, I think when you invite somebody to come for a meal, it's like a bonding of some sort. When you share a meal together, you're sharing time, you're eating together. There's some sort of special bond there. And I think that when you hear about food, you, to understand what they were eating while they were sharing time together gives you a kind of a better look into the past, I would say, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And just all different culturally, different levels of society genders, frankly, you know, men versus women, and then children, they had would have a different, you know, they might put them over to the side and they <laughs> have their, you know, little meals, debutante girls. I mean, you know, if you go back, they were almost like selling off their daughters to people, you know, to these men sometimes. So it's just like, there's so much that, you know, and they had these balls around celebrating that around there and what kind of food that they were going to serve for that. So it's not only just even the food itself, it's the events that were around it, yes. you know, and, and celebrated in a certain way. Like I said, there's just so many levels of, of what you can learn about. Well, definitely. I agree a hundred percent. So what uh, current or future projects are you working on, Becky? Well, I have, I'm hoping it's going to go through um, to write a book about Gilded Age slash Victorian. I mean, the two time frames kind of overlap, but um, holiday cookies and then maybe even desserts. So it started out to be just like Victorian Christmas cookies. But I think, you know, we're going to try to make it more about like the desserts for holidays during this time. They used to call cookies or small cakes is what they were really called. But, you know, it was a starting as, as a way people would give them as gifts and exchange them in a way. So um, I'd like to write about that. And then in addition, the next one to staying in this Gilded Age time frame, I want to write about the afternoon tea room that I mentioned briefly in the book about, you know, the Gilded Age cookbook about these two women who started this afternoon tea room in New York. And it really took off. It was two women entrepreneurs. And then tea rooms started to really proliferate throughout the US. And it actually kind of 
was a way like there were afternoon tea parties at this time for women. And I write about that too, but this afternoon tea room kind of put that, I don't want to say out of business, but then people, women were going to these actual locations and not people's houses anymore. So that kind of changed the way society was, um, you know, the circles of society were moving and it gave women more autonomy. So I want to write about that and the recipes that they would have included at those locations. Well, I'm looking forward to those books coming out. We'll get together again to find out yeah. about those. So how can people find out more about you and how they can get a copy of your books? Because you have three books, right? Yeah. Tell us about how people can do that. Sure. Um, my website's probably the best place to start, and that's beckyldiamond.com. So L is in Larry in the middle. The books are all, you know, any bookstore should be able to get them, and they're on Amazon, they're on Barnes & Noble. But I always try to give a plug for your local bookstore, too, to see if they can, if they don't have it in stock, they can usually order it. So, yeah. But and then the, on my website, there's a way to sign up for newsletters to stay in touch. I do a lot of events. I'm going to be doing a couple of cooking demos coming up on TV. So that's kind of interesting. You mentioned something about blogs. And I have a blog with different recipes on there. So that's on my website, too. Well, this has been a lot of fun. And as soon as we sign off here, I'm going to go down and find something to eat because I'm starving <laughs> after talking with you. I know that that's the downside to writing about food because you just get hungry all the time. <laughs> anyway, Becky, I wish you the very best in all that you do and keep doing it because it's fun and it's educational. And um, I think it's a big contribution to the history community because Hey, it's, a, it's something that we don't often think about as far as history, but it's important. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you having me on and, and showing your interest and, and, and sharing this with your listeners. It's great. You bet. So I hope you have a great day, Becky. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.